If you want to follow along a little bit this morning in your pew Bibles, I do have some page numbers for you. And the first place I would point you to is page 821. This is not the gospel reading we just heard. It's in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, but it's very similar to the gospel reading we just heard. We just heard Jesus say to those who did not believe who he was, tear down this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. He also said this in response to their asking for a sign. How can you say you are who you are? Do something to prove you are who you say that you are. That's how this same reading will begin. If you find, again, page, page 821, chapter 16, verse 1, where it says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, if you pause and scoop back just a little bit, you'll see he just fed 4,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fish. I mean, what more do you want? But they want more, and they test him. Verse 2, he answered to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In short, he says, you know whether to put a coat on or not, but you can't tell if God is standing right in front of you, talking to you. Now, the reason we're here is the next verse. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now, don't miss the little caveat here that if you want God to give you a sign, he says you're faithless. The moment you say, prove it to me, God, he says, I don't have to. You, you don't even want to. You wouldn't believe if I did. And so the only sign that really ultimately is given for all people in all places is the sign of Jonah. Now, in this text, he doesn't explain what that means. But if you go to other verses, other gospels, he says this. He says that just as Jonah was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man, that's himself, I, I said Jonah in the belly of the earth, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man himself will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Now maybe you're starting to see why we're here in Matthew 16, the sign of Jonah. If you don't know the story of Jonah, I don't know what rock you've been sleeping under, but then again, we live in pretty crazy times. And I don't just mean what's on the news. I mean that there is a severe lack of biblical literacy amongst your friends and neighbors. That means they don't know what the Bible says. They don't know who the people of the Bible are. The average person has never heard of King David. The average person can't tell you about the Exodus. And that means you might run into people these days who don't even know about the story of Jonah, even though it's the favorite punching bag for most people who don't like the Bible. Because the story of Jonah has at its center, not one, but two ridiculous miracles. Two parts of creation that appear to be things that simply cannot be. Now, let's just do a little bit of the story for fun. You can leave behind that page that we're on now and find your way to page 774, the book of Jonah. We're not going to read the whole thing, but some of the story is right there on the surface, doesn't need explanation. 
So we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I mentioned in the reading before, that was the second time that God sent his word to Jonah. Here is the first time that the word comes to Jonah regarding the city of Nineveh. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. That means it's the same Jonah who prophesies in the book of the Kings, saying, here it is, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, first off, I want to tell you a little bit about Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Assyria is the great power of the world at this time. So when he calls Nineveh that great city, even though it's nothing like New York City, you kind of want to think of it being like unto New York City is to us. It's huge. It's filled with tons of people. And there's all sorts of stuff coming in and out all the time. It is the center of everything. And he says, they're evil. What they are doing has come before me. Now, it's not a secret that the great evil that most pagan civilizations eventually get up to is the murder of their children as sacrifices. It happens again and again and again. I can't promise that's the only thing that God is concerned about, but we'll see by the end of the book, he is very concerned about the children in this city. We'll come back to that. Even so, what should we take from this? There is no evil that men do on this planet that does not arise to God's ears and nose. And at a certain point, he gets tired of it. He won't let it happen anymore. And he crushes it, whether by other evil or by the hand of good, doesn't matter. He's going to stop their evil from going any further. But first, he gives a warning. Now, what happens though? Verse 3, Jonah. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, is the opposite direction of Nineveh. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and they cried out each to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down, third mention of him going down, gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said one to another, Come. Let us cast lots that we may know whose account on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. Now you might think that's a surprise to Jonah, but it's not. He knows what's going on this entire time and he's waiting for it. But again, imagine the scenario. All these pagans believing somebody has made the gods angry. Let's figure out who it is. Oh, it's you. Ha, huh. it's you. Then they said to him, verse 8, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. That's Yahweh, Jesus Christ, yes. The God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? 
For they knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. What will transpire next is that through Jonah's disobedience, through his hatred of the people of Nineveh, we'll come back to that, God will actually convert these men, these pagan sailors, to trust in him. By the end of the story, in their part of it, they all are making vows to Jesus, saying he's their God now, the God of heaven and earth. But before that happens, Jonah tells them, look, it's my fault. I'm disobedient to my God, the one who's the greatest God who made all things. And the only thing you can do is to pick me up and throw me off the ship and into the sea. Now, these pagan sailors are more righteous than he. They're like, no, I will throw the cargo out, but that, no, we're not going to do that. Then he'll hate us more. Jonah says, no, 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 just do it. So they do it. They throw him into the sea. And here is where the part that always causes people so much trouble is. Verse 17, just skim down to verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And before we talk about the fish, how do we start this morning? They want to test Jesus. Prove who you are to us, Jesus. Prove you are the God who made heaven and earth. He says, just as, here's your sign, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. But here's the problem, right? What fish exists that can do this? And maybe you're one of those very active internet Christians who knows that you can find a story here or there about some shark or some whale or something. In fact, I even heard it on the news a couple years ago about an actual guy who was swallowed by a fish and was in it for two days and got spit up on ground in modern times. Fine. Fine. The moment you run off and look for the news to prove the Bible, you're already playing on the wrong field. You've let the skeptic have the ground. And no matter what information you give him, it will not be enough. How about we start with Jesus believed it. Jesus believed it. Because if he didn't, when he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so I will be in the earth, he can't mean what he says. He doesn't mean he's actually going to die and rise. Because Jonah didn't actually go into the fish. You follow me? The place to begin is that Jesus Christ believed this was history. And from that point, everything else is just a matter of whether or not you trust Jesus. Did he die and rise? Because that's the sign. We don't prove the Bible is true by going back and studying fish. If you want to prove the Bible is, fr- is true, go back and study the history of the resurrection of Jesus. Don't search your way out into atheist forums where they just scoff and dismiss. Go and look at the actual facts. Look at the number of witnesses that we have to that actual event. Look at the conversion of people who hated Jesus after his resurrection, like St. Paul, who says the reason I converted is because he showed up and talked to me. Look at the fact that you have a bunch of pious Jews who stop worshiping on the Sabbath and begin worshiping on the first day of the week because it's the day of resurrection. These are things that you can't explain with anything other than the resurrection of Jesus. I've gone through this before in the past. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it here. The arguments will be something like, well, they stole the body. Or, or, well, he just swooned. He just seemed to pass out. Or, well, they all imagined it. 
And all of those are such nonsense when you dig into them. They are not logical. They don't make sense. You can, in fact, then just stand your ground and say to the skeptic, look, you don't want to believe, that's on you. But the fact is, he rose from the dead. He is risen. He is risen. Alleluia. And so after this, whatever else he says about the Old Testament, you probably should believe it. And then since he believed the whole Old Testament himself, we're not really free to come along and say, I don't know, science this and philosophy that. If you trust science these days, I got a bridge to sell you. Goodness. Look at 17 again, 117. The Lord appointed a great fish. Appointed. That's a special word. It's connected to the word for creation. It means that God didn't just have a random fish show up. And yeah, maybe he picked a fish that was already there and it swam over and swallowed him. But it has enough power in that word to mean God actually just created a fish, a special one. One we've never seen before and we'll never see again, but it was capable of keeping a man alive in its belly for a couple of days. Now, when I want to scoff back, I say, maybe there was an easy chair and a fireplace and a pipe down inside for him to sit and relax. Nice little steak so he could hang out for those three days. Now, I don't think that's real, but I believe in a God who could do that if he wanted to. And so I'm not too worried about how this happened. Rather, I believe that it did happen And what you also want to see then happens next in the text is that Jonah considers this salvation because what happens next is he will pray. We're not going to go through all of it, but if you have it open, you can see how it's poetic. It's laid out like poetry. This is a prayer that Jonah offers in the belly of the fish. And it is not a prayer to be saved. It is a prayer of thanksgiving for having been saved. That is, Jonah himself realizes he was going to die. He'll talk about how the waves were swelling over him and the pressure of the mountains was crushing him. Of course, if you know, if you go deep enough in that water, the pressure does get pretty intense. And so he considered himself to be going down to the very bowels of Sheol, the very end of life, Tartarus, the underworld. And that's when he's swallowed by this fish as salvation from God. And he knows then in this that his prayer while he was dying, that he would look upon God again in his temple is answered. And so rather than saying, may I look upon your temple, he confesses in this prayer, I will look upon your temple, which means he believes he's going to get out of this fish. He's going to go do what he's supposed to do. And he'll return to the place of worship that he knows he should never have abandoned in the sense of turning his back on what God has done. So for our part this morning, I hope I've given you enough ammo to stop worrying about whether or not the story is true. And certainly to dismiss any of those who come along and say, oh, it's just poetry. That's okay. It won't affect your faith. It affects your faith when you don't believe what Jesus believed. Don't listen to the skeptics of this age. Trust that the word of God will stand sure far beyond the skeptics of this age. Now, After he gets spit out, we heard this read a few moments ago. We'll look at some of it. But to recap, he hears the word again, says, go to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh. It's this exceedingly great city. Here's another place the scoffers like to come in and they say, no city is three days journey across. Okay. This city was huge. It was absolutely huge. And yeah, across isn't actually a specific translation. But if you were to walk in this city all the way through and up and down, it would take you three days to go through all of it especially with the crowds in the main streets. 
I remember being at the Walk for Life a couple of years ago, maybe seven, eight years ago now. I'm going to have to get out of the pulpit to show you. It's quite a wide uh, distance that we walk. I can't remember. You go from one spot up past the courthouses and everything. Huge, huge crowds. And we were walking like this. Took hours. Took hours. You're in a crowd that doesn't move. It can take a long time. Didn't take three days. Took hours. It was snowing. <laughs> it was quite the time. But, so this huge city, he goes in. He preaches, they repent. This is unbelievable. We'll come back to this part and end with it today. They repent. But then what happens after that? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is the message of Jonah. And the fish part is a distraction. And when we argue about it, it's a distraction. Jonah didn't want them to be saved. Jonah fled not because he was afraid of Nineveh, but because he hated Nineveh so much, he did not want them to have a chance to repent. Now, in response to this, God will do another miracle. He will make a plant grow overnight to provide shade for Jonah on a hill across from the city where Jonah is waiting in the hopes that God still might destroy them. He would like to see fire come out of heaven but it's very hot. He doesn't like the heat himself, and he whines about it, so God makes this plant grow. Interestingly, the scholars don't make as big a deal about this miraculous plant. Even so, we should just believe it. He did it. It showed up. It covered him. He loved it. I'm in the shade today. It's great. Then God sends a worm. He appoints a worm. The worm eats the root of the plant. The plant dies. That's overnight again, and now he's stuck in the sun. We're going to pick up there again, I believe this is verse 9 of chapter 4. Well, we have to go back a little bit before that. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? I, I kind of like Jonah here, even though he's wrong, right? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, you, you've been in these moments, haven't you? When you just, you're so mad, you say something stupid. Yeah, I know you've been there, right? But he's, he, he really is so upset with life. He's so upset. And the lesson he has to learn is the lesson I want us to hear this morning. Verse 10, and the Lord said to Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now here again, the scholars who like to doubt the Bible will call into question the number 
120,000 persons. Because we know from history, there was a lot more people than that in this city. It would take more people than that to take that long to walk through those crowds. But the point is, he's not talking about all of the people in the city. He's talking about people who don't know how to tell their right from their left. How many adults have you met who can't tell their right from their left? But there are people who can't tell their right from their left. They're usually about seven, six, five years old, somewhere in there and lower. It's hard to say where. So what's the point here again? The point is, he says, if I'm going to punish this people because they destroy their children, the reason is because I want to save their children. So why should I destroy all of their children after they've repented? Why would I not, in fact, love them all the more for recognizing the right way to go and the right thing to do? Also, fascinating, he's not only concerned about the humans. The last line of the book is, and much cattle. The God who made heaven and earth didn't make it just to destroy it. The goal is not just to to throw it all away or to use it up in a fire. Cows and dogs and trees and everything else in creation, he made because he loves it. And even though it's submitted to futility in the curse that we have brought on ourselves, doesn't mean it's done for its own good, like so that they would have to live in death. Rather, he wants all creation to live under his mercy. And so why would he destroy these animals as well? You see his love for all creation in this, yeah? All right, so, but back to Jonah. Jonah doesn't talk about whether or not he understood this, but the fact that the book is in the Bible and that he was the only one who knew these events tells us he got it. He went back to the temple where he was a prophet, and at some point he wrote this down or he worked with somebody else who wrote this down for our benefit so that we would understand again, what's the point today? The zeal God has to save you from evil. Why is the sign of Jonah the only sign that matters for Christian proclamation? Because the death and resurrection of Jesus is what God enacted in history to save you and all creation from evil. The final thing then to wrap this up is to remember how important then repentance is in this. So I want you to go back to chapter 3 here and let's look at what this king and the people do. This is very important because I am convinced right now that what we need most in the United States of America is for Christians to remember that God answers prayer and then for us to begin praying that he would stop the evil men who are leading us in confusing and evil ways from doing that. So that once again, we could go back to peaceful and quiet lives where we're not so confused and set against each other with all of this hoopla and nonsense and stories that no one can weed through, no matter how wise you are. The answer is not to go out and figure it out on your own. The answer is to fall down on your knees and beat your breast and ask Jesus to save us from the confusion. And that's what this king of Assyria does, right? Verse 6 of chapter 3, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, I don't know that you can even find sackcloth if you wanted to. You can buy ash. You can do that from a Catholic supply store, but it comes in small packets for Ash Wednesday. So you'd need a lot of it to sit in. I don't know if you want to do that either. But the point here really is repentance involves your body. Repentance is not a fleeting wish or, oh, I wish I could repent. Repentance means actually saying, I mean this. 
And only you are going to know what that means for you where you are, right? I would contest as a whole, it means let's pray the Psalms more. Let's read the Bible more at home. Let's take home what we believe and act like it's what we believe while we're there. In any case, that's what he does. And then he also proclaims throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king, this is verse 7, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Fasting is an option. Again, I think that's a side point. Turning from our evil ways is the thing that we must do. And at this time in our history, which with, again, as confusing as it is out there, for any of us to say, it's not my fault, I have no evil ways, I'm not part of the problem, well, then you're definitely part of the problem. What the Christian church needs to do, I'm not worried about actually the, the pagans out there so much. I'm worried about the Christian church that has continually thought that politics and gaining seats in Congress is the solution to our problems. Now, I'm not against politics. I'm not against seats in Congress. I'm against thinking it's the solution to our problems. The solution to our problems is to see where we've been led, not by the Bible, but by the stories around us, and to repent from that, trusting in Christ instead. And especially to put our voice to those psalms which he has given to us to use in times such as these. So if you're taking notes today and you want to go read the Bible again this week, let me give you something. Psalm 43 and 44. Just go check those out. 43 is about God saving you from a godless nation. And 44 is about knowing that God is capable of saving you, but not understanding why it's so bad right now anyway, and asking him to put an end to it. I consider those to be very valuable words to say to God. I try to say them every day. I don't, but I try. Why? Because who knows whether he will hear and relent. I honestly don't think we're ever going back to pre-2020. That's my personal opinion. I don't think America will be like that again. But you know what? I kind of would like it if it was. I really would. And I know if it's going to be, if it's going to be that kind of peace that I remember the 80s being, mourning in America and all that kind of stuff, it's not going to be because of what we do. It's going to be because God relents and he sends a reformation, a renewal, a regeneration, which fills the pews again. Because I know what's happened since 1980 is fewer and fewer people in the pews. So if we want to see life and good times, we must indeed know that we're here on this earth not to hoard for ourselves and not to scoff at all those who are doing it wrong, but to be those ready to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. To be those ready to take those homeless packets, put them together and hand them out to those people who are at the bottom of a system that doesn't care about them at all. And to remember that but for the grace of God, there go we. To remember that we are all beggars when it comes into this place, when it comes to this meal. And if it were up to us to earn it, we would not have it. But remember again, what are you to know today? The zeal of Jesus is to save you. All of these words are about how much he desires to keep you his own so that none of these other stories would dissuade you, but you would walk about filled with the salt and light of his holy word and members of that body, that temple that has already risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. 
In the name of Jesus, amen.